Good morning and welcome to Next Page. How are you doing, Laura? Oh, I'm doing just fine there, Todd. How are you? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an early morning here in Los Angeles and it's a beautiful day, actually, which is very exciting. We are having a little bit of heat wave, but nothing compared to Charleston. Yeah, no, this is bad. I mean, it's it's okay. Well, I'll live. I'm going to stop complaining about it, okay? You know, this is as my, so the AC is on the fritz and has been for some time at the beer garden. And I promise you people, we ordered this AC a year ago and it is now coming in bits and pieces. And, but unfortunately everybody is suffering at the restaurant at the moment. But if I try to bring it up to any of the staff, they say, shh, we don't talk about it. If we don't talk about it, it's not happening. It doesn't exist. <laughs> so it's coming. The AC is going to be here in a week, supposedly. And we will all go back to being a little bit more happy. <laughs> I hope so. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know that was going on. Oh, yeah. It's been a thing. But I have not been talking about it because if you don't talk about it, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. <laughs> so what have you been up to? Oh, gosh. You know what I've been doing in L.A.? I have been taking my happy little ass and going to all these different little coffee shops and Ooh. sitting there and journaling like a Oh my gosh. Person. Well, um, I think that's what we try to, that's like a healthy person thing no, to it, do. I think a healthy person, but it's, it's just crazy it's for interesting. you. Well, it's crazy for me because I, when you write down your thoughts and get them out of your head, you go, Oh, well, that doesn't need to be in there anymore. It needs to get out. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then you don't think about it as much and you get some clarity on things that you don't really. And it's, what I'm recognizing is like going back a week later and reading my entries from a week before you're like, that's how I was thinking about this. Yeah. My perspective has totally shifted. Yeah. So that's what, that's what I've been doing. Honestly, that's what I've been enjoying. And I'm like on this coffee shop. I'm trying to find other alternatives to Starbucks. Even though I oh, that's not, that's good. Yeah. I mean, it's good to take a Starbucks break. And yeah. I mean, not that I really, I'm not a coffee drinker, so I'm not all up in there, but support local. You know, exactly. that's what's important. Exactly. So I believe in that. Well, how are do you? you excited? Thank you very much. Are you excited about our guest today? Oh, so excited. She is just a queen in my mind. She's like yes. just the epitome of resilience and overcoming. It's everything that we know and love about this podcast and why we do it. Would you like so, me to tell you a little bit about her? Well, today on the program, we have Laura Luxheim, a Southern California native, is a dedicated registered nurse and loving mother of five who embodies the spirit of nurturing and inspiring others through her incredible journey. Fueled by her desire to shine light on those in need, she has earned her nickname Lux, which perfectly reflects her compassionate and supportive nature. Her book, Glitter and Glass, is a powerful and raw memoir chronicling Laura's roller coaster life. The book delves into the darkest aspects of human experience, exploring failed marriages, mental disorders, polyamory, and attempted murder. As a role model for women from all walks of life, Laura's unwavering commitment to her family, career, and community continues to inspire and empower those who cross her path. Without further ado, we give you Laura Lux. All right. Well, good morning. Good morning, Laura. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Todd and Laura. We're so happy to have you on today. We're very excited about your new book. For our listeners just tuning in today that don't know you, could you please give us a little background on yourself, where you're from, what your childhood was like, and what do you do for a living? So my name is Laura, and I have lived in Southern California my whole life, so they I say I'm from the South, <laughs> so uh, San Diego, it's as South as it gets. <laughs> anyway, grew up in San Diego, good old, you know, American, large Catholic family, moved up to the Huntington Beach area when I was about six or seven years old. Gosh, I found nursing of all things, and I was kind of pushed into my career rather quickly due to a surprise pregnancy at 18. But luckily, with the support of my family, I was able to, you know, pursue my nursing career and became an RN at barely 22 years old. And thankfully, the career has kept me 
kind of grounded my whole life, even though my personal life has taken a lot of trips and turns and sideways detours along the way, if you will. You went on to write this book. Had you ever written anything before your book, Glitter and Glass? And are there any writers in your family? So yeah, great question. So, you know, in high school, I love to write poems, little short stories here and there. I enjoyed English literature and all of that, but I was never a formal writer. I was never brought up in that space. I have an, an aunt who, she was an English teacher and so, of course, she critiqued my book, you know, to the nines, which I really appreciated. But no professional writers or theatrical type people in my immediate family, at least. But the story really wrote itself. And so I had it in my mind. It kept going over and over. And I was encouraged just to start to kind of outline it and write it down. And it really took a life of its own. So yeah, no formal training as a writer per se, but I wanted to make it kind of like a dialogue between myself and the reader or the listener, if you will, in that I am just telling my story to whoever's listening so or reading it in right. this case. You do have a long lost brother that's a screenwriter though, yes? Yes, that is true. That is true. So in the book, that's he, very cool. he is known as Jonathan. Jonathan and I are eight months apart. So do the math and figure that one out. But almost my long lost <laughs> twin, if you will, I am older. <laughs> Jonathan has his own podcast and uh, lives in New York City and has made a career at a few few screenplays. So yes, his writing is just always makes me laugh and he's wonderful at telling a good story. That's awesome. And so are you. And can you please explain to us and our listeners what you are referring to and the significance of the title of your book, Glitter and Glass? Like why this title? Yes. So the glitter, of course, represents all the things in our lives that are fun and sweet, even the bittersweet moments, the things that we remember, that highlight reel in, in our memories that are like those, oh, God, that was a, a great day, you know, or that was a wonderful person in my life. Those shiny, sparkly, glittering moments, literally. And then the glass part is the opposite, the things that cut us, the things that hurt the things that leave the deep wounds and the scars and, and all of those things. And, and what's funny is if you do take glass or you take shards of glass and you shine them in the sun, they can too mimic what glitter looks like. So, you know, aesthetically, they can kind of fool us and trick us as into, God, that time of my life sucked or that man was a jerk or really mean... But it's hard to kind of tell the difference in, in many instances where we think that we're having a glittery moment or a great time when, in fact, it's really toxic or bad for us and it's really damaging us in many ways. Yeah, I think we can all pretty much relate to that as far as, you know, right. everything starts out promising. And even when it is going sour, you can kind of trick yourself into thinking it's still okay. This is yeah. still there's glitter. There's, glitter. there's glitter everywhere. See? Yeah, it's still yeah. reflective, so it's fine. <laughs> right, right. And I think we've learned a lot on the show that that's how a lot of things begin. You know, you're kind of in denial a little bit, let it keep going. And sometimes you just got to get a mirror to show it back to you. So I think it's an awesome title. I think it's a really cool analogy to everything. So bravo on that. And as you know, we talk a lot about trauma on this show. Yes. And you have certainly been... Through it, girl. Through it. Yes. <laughs> but we need to start somewhere. So in 1984, you spent three months in a mental hospital. I did. I Why did. Why was that and how did that affect you? So at the time, in the 80s, we didn't really diagnose, identify, or have in our in the public awareness like we do now Things like PTSD, child you know, or teenage depression, teenage anxiety, and these kinds of things. And so instead of bringing it to the forefront to have parents or teachers alike and in or as a public awareness, we really didn't identify these things and take our kids to therapists or 
you know, consider medications or other things like that. It was really more of a shameful kind of a stain or a, a black mark on a family, if you will, if your kid had any kind of just outside the normal childhood angst, if you will. And we were put away. I mean, that's kind of what happened at the time, both my myself and my sister, a few months apart, we were literally locked up in a mental institution in the shinier parts of Long Beach. And I'm being very facetious. It was quite frightening. And so at the time it was, you know, if any child mentioned, you know, I want to hurt myself or I'm, I'm remotely suicidal or that kind of thing, it was the obligation of, of the state or, or a therapist to say, you know, we need to lock them away. And so I was stripped of all dignities, of all identities and, and put into, you know, a psych ward locked up, literally locked up. And there were no medications at the time that I was given or taking. And it was a horrific experience. What was the reasoning? Like, What were you kind of exhibiting that made them think you needed to be locked up? I can't believe this is happening in the 80s, by the way, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, 84. I was depressed. I was a depressed oh, wow. teenager. I was blue. I would get up and, and, of course, function at school. My grades were very important to me. So there weren't any academic signs that, oh, something's going on or something like that. I would still perform in school. I wanted to please my parents. But when I wasn't getting good grades, I would literally, I think, just tune out, put on the headphones. You know, we didn't have cell phones then. So of course I just put on a record, put on the headphones, lay like a ball of a blob in the bed all day and, and not really do much else. I wasn't addicted to any drugs or alcohol or anything like that. I was just a depressed kid and I wanted a change. I was feeling a lot of identity crisis as far as like, where do I fit in? I was the oldest of four girls and a stepsister at the time. And I felt like there's got to be more to my life than just this. And I was very emotional and very in tune to myself. And I wanted in some ways to get out of what I believe my family created this otherwise perfect, what we called the Disneyland family. You know, it went on presentation. It was mom, dad, the girls, and you know, we would go to church and we would go to this the events of the time, barbecues and such, social events, and putting on that air of appearance for perfection. And I wasn't feeling that. And so that kind of led me into a, a dark place of being very depressed. And instead of dealing with it as a family, I was put away. I was on no medications. I never took a pill. I was put away and I was in a semi-private room with two other girls who were similar to me in my age. And one was severely physically abused. She was sexually abused. I was looking at my home life and I'm like, I don't have it so bad <laughs> compared to these other kids. It was just horrible. The other stories I was hearing, I'm like, I'm just depressed. Yeah. I got to get out of here. And they wouldn't let me leave. Yeah. You know, I was in a lockdown, bars on the windows, not allowed to go outside, told when to eat, sleep, get up, you know, shower. The staff would watch me, you know, go to the bathroom, take a shower. I was stripped of, oh you know, of course, no belts, no pens, anything that you think of that might harm someone. They took that away. Wow. That in of itself was depressing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't understand how they thought this was going to fix the issue, but, you know, yes. that's the yeah. camera there. Right. Well, Laura, your book, Glittering Glass, chronicles your roller coaster life with a series of failed relationships with men who have sort of varying mental disorders in their own right. Throughout the book, you sort of give everyone nicknames, uh, like your husband now is called the Kraken, your mother is called Le Grand Dame, things like that. But do you think, getting into the nitty gritty of this, do you think the absence of your biological father growing up and the fact that your stepdad never adopted you had anything to do with your attraction to men who were emotionally unavailable? Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, at the time, we really didn't think of it like that. It was more of, of a course. matter of survival. And so now with the benefit of the rear view mirror in 2020, you know, we could go back and go, oh my gosh. And of course, 
my mother, La Grande Dame, did the best she could, and I believe went above and beyond. She's a stellar and very strong woman and had to have been to get through what she was also dealing with at the time. But I had an absent father. We would like to refer to him as the donor because he did literally just donate his biological being to myself and others, but he was never around. And so my mother moved on and found a wonderful, supportive man, the accountant. We know him in the book. And he was a fantastic provider and functionally did all the great things that, of course, parents do. And But however, he never adopted myself and my younger sister. He wanted to, as he described it, leave the door open for the biological father, should he ever decide to show up, which he never did. And so, you know, at the time I thought, oh, this is great. This man loves us, la la, and we get on with our childhood lives. But now looking back, it's like, that really hurts. That has affected me that this man never, even where he could have at 30 could have perhaps adopted us in an unofficial manner or or made a declaration to say, you know, I never really officially did, but you are family, you do belong. And so I think I've always struggled with that and tried to find a man to make my a nuclear family really fit and to have my own, which never really happened along those years. In a way, I guess, I think you kind of I don't know, didn't replace, but you did have your grandfather as kind of an example, which thankful for that, I I assume, because not to have any kind of real male figure, I'm sure your stepdad was in a way like that for you. But, you know, at least you had a standard that you were always kind of seemingly trying to reach. But before that happened, you actually got pregnant with your first at a young age and decided to keep the baby. And in your book, you kind of attribute that to your Catholic upbringing, but you didn't do what most people that you said in the book during that time, which was give up the baby. So why was this and what did your mother, aka La Grande Dame, think of that decision? So, yes. So at the time, of course, (laughs) a lot of things were living in denial, sweeping under the rug, as as we have, have said over and over again. And it's all fine and dandy until something like a pregnancy happens that is unplanned. And at the time, the norm was, well, you give it up for adoption. It was just what you did. And I, I thought to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. I knew the story of myself when when I was a baby and my mother chose to keep me and she chose and here I am and I have a wonderful mother and a great family. And so I think I can do this. I want to keep the baby. There's a reason why these things happen. It's not just, oops, I got pregnant. So perhaps this child is going to be a wonderful human adult someday. And and I would like to be there. And I, th- I think I've got the chops, if you will, to, to be a good mother, even though I am young. And I think I've got this. And so I decided to keep the baby, even though his father at the time, immediately his question was, so when are you going to do it? You know, have an abortion. And I decided, you know, no, I want to keep the child. I, I don't want to. I think I can do this. And so Was he angry at you? At first, yes. You know, at first he was like, wait a minute, you're going to be cutting my life short or your life short as far as being 18 or 20 years old. Initially, he was. He thought that this wasn't the best decision. But then once it became real, once his son was born and he saw this being in front of him, he immediately, of course, fell in love with his son and was a very involved father right from the beginning, even though we weren't married initially. So he took ownership. Yeah, he's still a part of of his life? Absolutely, absolutely. Very involved, yes. And it forced him as a a 20-year-old at the time to really step up and to find a career and, and become a father and grow up rather quickly. But he did it remarkably well. But again, there was still, there was a lot of public kind of scrutiny, not so much shaming, but this scrutiny of, oh, okay, yeah, 
Catholic family. She got pregnant. Oh, that must mean she was having S-E-X, you know. Oh, my God. That's usually what happens. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and they would use <laughs> words like, they still use the term bastard child. I mean, this was the wow. 80s. You know, oh, it's, it's a, it's going to be out of wedlock. And that was the only time you ever used the word wedlock. It was like, what are we in? What is this? 1650, you know, and and (laughs) the child won't have a name. And I'm like, of course he's going to have a name. He's going to (laughs) have his father's name. It was so still very traditional, even though this was, you know, we're talking 35 years ago, but with that, it was, you know, I, I kept the baby at first, my grandmother was the one that really was being a promoter of, well, you need to go out of state, have the baby, give it up for adoption, and then just suddenly come back as if nothing ever happened. That was telling. Yeah. It was really telling, as if our children are these commodities that we just deliver to the world, a la The Handmaid's Tale. You know, we just. Yeah. deliver these children and then we go on with our lives with seemingly no ill effects to our psyche, you know, at all. I could not do that. I wasn't willing to do that. We do talk about generational trauma and because you kind of brought up your grandmother, do you think that your mom's mom was just as hard on her growing up and does maybe her disappointment and you and your decisions the present day kind of affect the way that things turned out? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So at the time, those roles were so specifically defined from men to women and what you did as an adult, you know, men were expected to be a certain way. Women were expected to be a certain way. And if you fell out of the norm, you were essentially kind of cut out, at least in my family. You were expected as the woman, you know, to be the homemaker, rear the children, be at the father's beck and call. You were supposed to be able to make a stellar casserole and put on Thanksgiving dinner and all these things. And if you weren't leaning towards that, you were kind of looked at strangely. And it was it was rather frowned upon to be the independent woman. If you weren't married by 22, you know, what was wrong with you? you know, that kind of thing. And men were expected to pull up their bootstraps, provide, provide. work, work mm-hmm. as many hours a week that you had to, to put the food on the table, to pay the rent, to pay the mortgage, whatever it was. And that was it. And men were not expected to change a diaper, to put the kids to bed. I mean, these were the things that were reserved for mother. And it really defined these things. But at the same time, my mother had this dichotomy of, you have to do all these things, young Laura. However, you need to be independent too. And I really struggled with that. So she told me never to rely on a man. However, that's how society kind of painted this picture of you grow up, you live at mom and dad's house, and then you marry this guy, and then you move into his place. There was never this transitionary moment of being an independent, free-thinking woman. I mean, that was a new kind of concept at the time, but it wasn't the norm. Surely wasn't the norm. Well, it didn't work out with your first son's dad, and you decided to marry your high school boyfriend, which you call in the book, The Rocker, Yes, who you thought was a safe bet, right? So from your accounts in the book, he was very immature and emotionally and verbally pretty abusive. He would often taunt you in front of the children and degrade you and basically ended up controlling everything, everything from what you wore to the amount of makeup you were allowed to wear. Otherwise, you would be called certain names like a whore or whatever. You describe him as someone with borderline personality disorder. Laura, was he ever diagnosed with borderline personality disorder? And how did you handle the traumatic aftermath of that marriage? So at the time, again, this was early 90s going into 2000s. I had known the rocker since my high school years, and he always had something. And at the time, there wasn't borderline personality disorder. Yeah. (laughs) We talked about manic depression, you know, those highs and lows. However, he was never diagnosed at the time. He wasn't taking any medication. It was, and of course, that kind of personality, they are the last ones that will want to go to a therapist's office because everybody else 
we're the crazy ones, right? And he was the one that, you know, it's my way or the highway, and this is the way I am. And if you don't like it, it was very black and white, up and down. But yes, now looking back at all those personality traits and the patterns, and you can almost plot it out on a, on a graph, he was very borderline a personality. You never knew what you were going to get from the day to day, and sometimes from the hour to the hour. One minute, sweet as pie, smiling, and the next, you know, I'm getting a remote control thrown at my head, you know, and it's like, what the fuck was that? And it, and it was yeah. that kind of thing. And I always thought, you know, I thought of that story of the lion and the mouse with the pulling the needle out of his paw. You know, I was, I was the little mouse and he was the angry lion. And I always thought if I could just pull this needle out of his paw, it'll make it all better. Or if I'm just a kind, gentle person that is a, of an example of a happy person, it's going to rub off on this, on this person. And it never did. And so it got to a breaking point. I thought if I could just exude this kindness and show and even be vulnerable and cry, you know, and I thought maybe he'll see if I'm hurt or if I'm, you know, sobbing, then he would soften and come to my aid and go, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize how much I've affected you. But it did the opposite. He would then taunt me even more and more. If I was crying, he would mock my vulnerability. Oh, and mm -hmm. that just, I could not be a party to that anymore, nor have my children watch how this man was treating me. But as horrific as some of these people can be, there is that charm side that yeah. we find so endearing. There's this magnetism, you know, and he was the rocker because he's a guitar player. And he, you know, when he's on, he's on and you're like, oh, what a charmer, you know, when he could smile and, and come into a room. But yes, there's that ugly, ugly underbelly side that few of us saw. And I got the brunt of that. I mean, he was very talented. You said in the book that he was very good guitar player and he had there was a major record label that was yeah, Columbia, interested in him at some yeah. point. Yeah. Columbia Records. So, I mean, it's not like he he didn't have. Let's face it, like everyone loves a, a musician. Like it is yeah. what it is. They're sexy. Yeah. And that gets to that. Yeah. Why do we love the bad boys? You know, why yeah. are all of us, you know, <laughs> attracted to this guy where I'll never forgive him, my friend, the jazz singer in the book. And she looks up on stage and she goes, Oh, I'll take the dirty one, you know, and she like, there, there's, there's something <laughs> about these people, but it comes with a price, you know, and there's a heavy. And mine, it came with my dignity. It was getting to me down to the bones of my soul, you know, of how I was being treated. And I realized, you know, now looking back, my self-esteem must have been at the lowest of the low at that time yeah. to tolerate that kind of behavior. Because I think we always believe that somewhere they're going to turn around. You can fix it. Are. Yeah, I could fix it if I yeah. just show him how kind and loving and nice I am. And, you know, then maybe it will turn around, but it never, it never did in my case. But you realized that that was not for you and moved on, but you did eventually, was it your children that were with him or with the following was the author? You met a man named the author, but you eventually lost custody of your three and five-year-old children for a while. Was that, who was that too? That was with the author. Okay. So he was, yes. So he was my, my third marriage and quite opposite from the rocker who was very explosive emotionally. The author was much like a robotic, you know, data from Star Trek, very logical, very, well, you said this, we're going to do this and, and all of that. And at the end of that relationship, most unfortunately, he, for whatever reason, had to leave the state. And I was so emotionally broken at that time and so traumatized by the behaviors that and the things that I was exposed to during that marriage, that when he did leave the state, it was like a cancer leaving the building. It was so horrible, but it came with the price of me losing my children, not because I was a bad parent or that I, I couldn't manage my children, but he left and moved to Iowa and it gave me some reprieve from him. I was so traumatized by his behaviors 
that, okay, he took the kids. Well, I had a two bedroom, one bath apartment at the time, and I wasn't emotionally or physically available to really take on the task of managing them and my three other children at the same time. I was broken. You were literally a battered wife. I was. And you kind of swung from like one pendulum went the other way. You thought, you know, okay, well, this guy is so different from the guy before. So he can't possibly also be hurtful or treat me this way. And I mean, I think that's completely like kind of a natural thought process. But do you you feel like you had any like warning signs with him that he was going to end up treating you badly? Do you feel like he was kind of like a narcissist? What, What kind of was going on there with him? Well, it was a slow burn. You know, it was over the course of the two years that we were dating, he would make remarks here and there. And I thought, okay, you know, things that you start to kind of go, I guess I can stomach that, you know, and then I had my reference point of such an explosive relationship with the rocker that the philosophies and the tellings of the author, who is very narcissistic, that I thought, okay, comparatively, this isn't so bad. And I would self-talk my psyche into, I could do this. What's so, what's such a big deal of watching the man I'm dating, being with another woman. Okay, maybe I need to be enlightened. Maybe I need to rise above and be more cerebral about this and take a pragmatic approach to my life and and elevate myself, if you will. And then I started to second guess, maybe my Catholic upbringing or society has gotten it all wrong, if you will. And maybe there's some truth to what he's telling me. And so I was in fact groomed for this new lifestyle that he was proposing that we could do together and that it really was. So he groomed you for polyamory. Correct. Basically. Can you explain what that is and how you eventually got out of the marriage? So in the world of polyamory, from where I was experiencing it, it was, it should be that a man and a woman or, you know, whatever have you, two people are together But the woman in this case is the queen, what they refer to as the queen or the goddess. And she, what she says goes. So she's not comfortable with said partner being with a particular woman or having this couple over, then her word is gold. And he is supposed to honor that and kind of take that. And it's a mind fuck really to wrap around your head. And, and this whole, the, the notion that he would explain was, well, while you're at work and doing your job, what I'm doing off screen, if you will, has no effect to your life. And if I, you think about it hard enough, I'm thinking, that really doesn't, I guess, but you are now putting yourself, choosing to be with somebody else. And he had this ability to detach his mind from his body. And I can't do that. I know most people can't do that. And But at first I thought, okay, this isn't so bad. And I would compare it to the rocker experiences. And I'm like, he doesn't call me names. He doesn't yell at me. He doesn't throw remote controls at my head. He does treat me kindly. And I thought, okay, I guess this is enough. And if the worst thing he does is go and screw other women, (laughs) essentially, then I guess my life isn't so bad. And so I would talk myself into this. And then by this time, I had three children. We were getting married. And I just kind of stuffed that all down. And much to the ways of the Le Grand Dame, I lived externally, I lived this lie, this this front of we're all happy, you know, go to work, go to the family events. And nobody in my family knew the struggles that I was dealing with. I wanted it to work so bad. And the things that I wasn't comfortable with, they were nuances like, well, I'm not comfortable giving that guy a blowjob. Those were the uncomfortable things. And so I would talk myself into, you know, going to the swingers clubs, going to with a lot of hesitation. But again, I went along with it. 
And then he wanted to, of course, get married and have two children. And I agreed. And the one thing that I was uncomfortable with was the one rule, you don't screw the nanny. And he agreed to that. And he stuck to it. And I thought, oh, my God, now I look back and I say it out loud right now in front of you two. And I can't believe that that was my rule. I mean, this yeah. is, it's ludicrous. It's just ludicrous. And it finally, it got to a point where like what you were saying, Todd, was this is not okay. And the not okays came after two children with this man, an au pair living in my home where we had, we had an obligation to have her here in the United States. She came from Brazil and I was in deep. I mean, I had five children, three marriages later, an au pair, a house payment, three cars, and I'm financially, you know, have a lot of overhead. Again, I kept self-talking into, this isn't so bad. He doesn't hit me. He doesn't drink. He doesn't do drugs. He's good to the children. However, there is this lifestyle that's on the other side that I can't live with anymore. And it got to a point where I don't care the price. The, again, telling LeBron Dom and my family, here I am again. Yeah. I got to go. I got to go and get out with my soul. Did they know about the polyamory, like your family? No. Okay. No, all right. Nothing. They knew nothing. They always knew. And after all of this kind of came out and the bomb hit, my aunts and uncles and some cousins and such, they would say like, I knew there was just something wrong with that guy. Like there just wasn't, he wasn't all there. Like he did, wasn't completely tuned in. He was gone a lot. I would show up at family events a lot, just me and the kids. But I did that also with the rockers. So it wasn't entirely unusual, but it was in a different way. While I was at something or hosting a birthday party, he was off with, you know, name it, who he was off with. <laughs> I knew that he had gone to Bangkok before with a prior girlfriend. I knew that they would essentially hunt for women. I knew about these things, but they were stories. So as we're sitting in a cafe with coffee and I'm sipping a latte, you can kind of theorize it and put it into a bucket in my mind. And I thought, okay, that was his prior life. He's not going to do that with me because I'm so awesome and so amazing. Why would he want to go run around town? And so I yeah. thought I can change this. I can do this. And especially if he's wanting to have a family, Maybe being a father will change those parts of him and he won't need to have that itch to scratch. You know, he can be happy at home, but he didn't. So we went along and I started to joke. I got pregnant with my fourth child with him and I started to joke about the belly as women do. And I said, hey, you know, getting a little big here. Uh, this uh, concession stand is closed. You know, you might want to go get a girlfriend in joking. And he took that literal, he took it like Data in Star Trek or Spock, very logical. And he said, well, she told me to get a girlfriend. I'm going to go get a girlfriend. So he did. And he had a young, young, you know, girlfriend for the better part of four or five months. And I discovered this girlfriend through a series of missed phone calls, texts, receipts laying around that didn't make sense. And I trusted him implicitly until that day. And that was the day I went into labor with my daughter. And I'm finding out about this affair that he had kept on with this person at work. All the while, now I'm in labor and, and having this pending baby. And the scene of going to the hospital with your husband, with the little bag in the middle of the night, wasn't the same, you know, we, we always like to glamorize these things. There's the husband, oh, I've got the door, honey, I'm going to get the wheelchair, she's in pain. And this is the love of my life. And we're going to have a family and here comes this child. And it wasn't like that at all. In this case, the nurses, of course, you know, he's very charming. And they were like, Oh, you must be the greatest dad. And I was ready to, you know, <laughs> throw an IV pole at him because I was damning him at the same time. And I'm like, you know, you're fucking a woman at work and I'm the size of a house 
and I'm Ugh. having your baby. It was not the Kodak moment. It was not the bonding moment. I had been a mother before and I gave birth to this child and there it is, you know, crying. And I'm, I'm thinking I should be filled with love. I should be filled with adoration towards this baby. And it wasn't the norm of what we want, you know, in those moments of mom, dad, new baby being born and pictures being taken. And it was traumatic in and of itself to have him even there. And then as a reminder, it, and so I, I tell my daughter now that was the best day and it was the worst day for me in that bittersweet. She, it was glitter and glass all at the same time in that she was born. I had this beautiful little girl, but it was the day that the Pandora's box had opened at that moment. And in those ensuing weeks, he started to really reveal to me, okay. And he talked about above board, you know, well, here I am. And now I have a thing for this girl and this girl at the cafe and this one. And I'm like, and how many more are there? You know, bring it out. <laughs> Not just one, but like four or five that he could written yeah. were important. And I'm like, Okay, so here I am now in the throes of new motherhood, plus three more children, a lot on the line. And so I stuffed it. I stuffed it down and I thought, okay, I gotta, I gotta wrap my brain around this, as he would call it. I've got to figure this out. And then I gotta go back to work, back to my nursing career and literally, Oof. you know, put on the smile, put on the makeup. And now that I knew of his ways, I knew I wasn't going to change who he was. So I decided, well, if you can't beat him, join him, you know, scenario. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to do this too. Maybe this is the new me. I don't know. And, and so I did. I played along. We would leave the baby with the au pair. We would go to the swingers clubs and, I never found it necessary and I didn't have time. I mean, I'm working full time with four children. When do you have time to go and like, screw extra people? Like, I was just going to say, I mean, who has the, I don't like, have the was he working? He would work. Well, he worked from the coffee shop scene. So he would set up camp oh. and part of his allure was he would see how far he could take it and he would, you know, the author, he was always writing, working on the next script next book and the next whatever and I thought you know he was a he's a brilliant man very very smart very articulate so that's part of that dichotomy that charm of pulling you in and then yeah then there's the ugly side well I guess I'll deal with the ugly side because the charm is so worldly and wonderful okay that was the first thing I thought when I read about this book. I was like, I don't understand where this man is finding time to do all of this because I know you'll have an au pair, but you're working the whole time and he's, I guess, multitasking. Right. Just mind blowing. After the first one, of course, he wanted two. He wanted an air and a spare, right? He wanted a blue eyed and a green eyed to his design as a self-proclaimed God. You know, he wanted to have his, his legacy, if you will, with these children. And, and of course, and he, he kept reminding me, well, you signed up to have two, you know, I'm like, oh, for Pete's sakes. And so we go to the therapist's office and I thought he's got to change this. I, I can't have this man running around town and he did hold back. He took his foot off the gas just enough to have me convinced to have the second baby. And I, I did, you know, me, I did. And so as I'm barely pregnant with the last one, he was back to his shenanigans, if you will. I'm finding myself now sleeping in another room, crying all the time. You know, it was just horrific. And then I realized at that point, I've got to get out. I can't. I can't do this anymore. This is enough. And I even consulted with a self-proclaimed tantric goddess from San Diego who was very much living the polyamory lifestyle. And she even said, what he's doing is not okay in our world. And I thought, oh my yeah. God, if this isn't even okay in the tantric goddess polyamory, <laughs> we all love one another. And we're, there's eight of us and the, the orgies and all. What he was doing was not 
taking into account my feelings and what I thought was not okay. He was just running his own show. So she even told yeah. me, you got to get out. <laughs> so I thought, oh yeah. my God, if this woman tells me that, then it's got to be bad. And, and I agreed. And, and so to think of a person, or in my case, a woman or women as objects or things that you collect in jars. And then as I left, he inserted another woman. And so we are just these exchangeable beings that can be brought in and brought out with no sense of duty, honor, dedication, that kind of thing. And, and that's where I still believed in love because I knew that his type of organism, his species was so rare that I thought there are good men out there. There are good men like my grandfather, who I had as a supreme example way back in the beginning as a child, that there are good guys do exist. And I'm not going to become bitter and hang up on love and hang up on people because I had a few rotten apples in my tree, if you will. I didn't want to give up on that. That's the whole thing. Your book, you still go back to believing in love right. and believing in the magic. That's what's incredible to me that you just, there's something inside of you that just believes in, I don't know, the wholesomeness of, of another human or the good nature of another person, even though you've had all these men that are just deplorable, to quote Hillary Clinton. <laughs> right, right. And I could see where a lot of people would become disenchanted with the world and with yeah. their common man or, you know, their common woman or, you know, fellow, whatever. But to realize, oh, I got screwed. This guy cheated on me. And now I'm forever going to be looking at the world and, with a different lens. And I'm going to be mad and angry and never trust again. And it's like, you know, if you do that, then you're just going to end up to be a bitter old person shaking your fist at the sky going, you know, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, these things happen to the best of us, the smartest, the funniest, the prettiest, the richest, the whatever I, I you know, if you open up any magazine or look on the internet, my God, you know, it literally isn't me, it was them. <laughs> so I can't look at yeah. I can't look at it that way right. going, what did I do wrong? What well maybe I didn't see the signs or I didn't, but I did trust. And and with love, we do take risk. You know, there is a certain degree of of risk in any relationship, whether it's a friend, a work relationship, a, a romantic relationship. There's that risk that has to be spent, or you could just play it safe and sit in a one bedroom, one bath the rest of your life and, and never get, go outside. You know, there's, there's risk in everything we do. Yeah. So. And that actually pays off. Like you end up marrying your current husband who you call the Correct. Kraken yeah. and y'all end up getting, you know, getting married. He's definitely a, a stand up guy, but you were eventually reunited with your daughter after she spent most of her life with the author and became kind of maladjusted is the nice way of putting it, I think, in the book. But And you went to suffer parental abuse from both her and your stepson. Can you kind of explain for us what parental abuse is and why it's important that we kind of put it out there? Absolutely. So, of course, you know, we are all well-versed in our world about child abuse, elderly abuse, spousal abuse. You know, we hear about these things and it's it's horrific. But what we don't really hear too much about, or maybe it's a whole new thing coming on the horizon, is this concept of parental abuse. And of course, we do have, you know, you can cite almost any teenager, you know, myself included as a teen, you know, we give our, our parents a lot of grief, some more than others. And of course, we're finding our own footing and learning who we are becoming young adults. However, there is a degree where a line is crossed and you know, there are some children who emotionally abuse their parents, financially abuse and physically abuse their parents. And that is not normal. And that is not okay. You know, it's one thing to blurt the occasional, I hate you, slam the door and grunt and go to your room and that kind of thing. But when there is taunting and torment and ongoing, and you're coupling that with a child who clearly has a mental disorder issue or adjustment or illness, whatever you want to call it, then it's crossing a line to where it's consuming your life as a parent. I became with La Chica in the book. That was a phase of her life. 
that I was abused and myself in the crack and were severely abused to the point where we couldn't leave our room. We were down. We did not feel safe. And she would abuse our home and, and break things and hurt us. And physically, I would go to bed at night thinking, oh, God, I'm going to get I can get stabbed in the night. I'm going to be on the news. You know, those kinds of things. That's where it crosses a line. And then as we started to talk to other parents, we started to learn that there are pockets of other parents that have had similar experiences. And so that's why I wanted to really illustrate that in my book is that this is not normal. And the Kraken dealt with it in his own ways with, with his son. When I met him at 16, right away, there was emotional outburst, things that just something was not off. And I knew within the first 20 minutes, I thought, Oh my, you know, this boy needs some help. Like this is not your normal teen going, Hey, hey, dad, you know, yo bro. You know, I mean, maybe some little benign disrespect. This was blatant. Like this kid needs some serious help. Yeah. You point out in the book kind of too, that like the question of the nature versus nurture, which, you know, a lot of people can sit there and spin their wheels on, but like that, you know, it was kind of clear that what kind of happened with your daughter or or more clear, maybe that was a little bit of the author's direct influence. Whereas with your stepson, he had your now husband, the Kraken and his mother were very nice, sweet people. And he still turned out to be kind of abusive and generally have those issues. So I think it's important to get it out to other parents too, that like you can't necessarily like explain it away or try to figure it out that this can happen in any way, shape or form. It's not like something that you did necessarily, that it also can, can just appear. Exactly. So yeah. So the Kraken was married for 19 years prior to me. I like to say his prior kept him in cryostasis until I came along. But anyway, yeah, they were both upstanding Americana, educated people, hardworking people, double income. The boy wanted was a one one and done, as they said, wanted for nothing. I mean, he had, if you wanted scuba lessons, we'll get you scuba, skateboarding, karate, what, whatever you wanted, trips to Hawaii, all the above. You need a car, you get a car, you know, these kinds of things. And he still, despite their mild nature and how they decided to stay together for the boy, he still ended up with his wires horrifically crossed and abused both of them to the nth degree. And well, getting back to La Chica and, and it was the author was his, I mean, sorry, the rocker was her father with the borderline. I question if there was some, there was just some nature there or some mimicking of his behaviors that fell into La Chica's lap. As far as the things that she learned from him, the tactics that he used and the abuses and how he would fling words at me when she got old enough, it was right out of his playbook. She would then recite the exact same things. And now I'm here again, hearing and seeing the same abuses, but now at the hands of my daughter. And that was even more intensified. It was very difficult to live with and to get through. But the good news is is that as she has now grown up, she is completely, completely turned around. And we have a stronger relationship now because of it. And because she realizes that was her then, and it's not the person, the young woman she has become today. For everybody listening, please go get Glitter and Glass. It's a great, great, great read, but have a glass of wine. Or two. (laughs) I guess I want to ask you, did you, so you seem very well-adjusted now of all the experiences in your life. You seem to understand the journey and why you went through all of that. But to get there, did you receive any therapy or mental health assistance along the way in the wake of all of that? And if you did, how did it help you make sense of everything you've been through? Absolutely. I, from the get-go, well, as, as a child and as a teen, we dabbled in therapy, though it was 80s and 90s version therapy. It's not the same as, as it is now. But as the Kraken and I were dating, we realized we need support, not for ourselves as two people in a relationship, because we get along very well, but how do we deal with our past 
our family dynamics? How do we deal with the likenesses of my covering all of those damages that were done that I have had that ability of smile, get through and just ignore it. But it started to come out through therapy and through regular therapy, both individual therapy on my own and couples therapy with the two of us together. And it was instrumental in my healing. I couldn't have done it without it. And the assignments that my therapist gave me, I knew I had to do work, that it wasn't me just showing up every two weeks or every week and having her tell me what to do. I needed to process and to journal and to talk about and to learn. It's like exercising, you know, for your body. I had to exercise my mind and my psyche and my soul and how to get back to a healthy space, loving me and then loving other people in my life like the Kraken. I I really wanted to illustrate that this wasn't a journey of, oh, and then she found the man and they live happily ever after. Yay, good for you. It was about finding myself and grounding myself. And through that, a lot of therapy (laughs) and then a lot of self-reflection and to realize what is my standard? What is okay and not okay for me? And not just with a relationship like the Kraken, but with other relationships in my life, with my children, with my mother. So boundaries. Exactly. Exactly. It seems like you really have, like we love it on here, done the work and and put in and the time and, and the self-reflection. So that brought you to, to where you are today. So if you kind of had to summarize the message and core of your story, what would you want people to really take away from Glitter and Glass? Well, I think to take your time, take your time with yourself, never be in a rush. Don't take your square peg and try to fit it into a round hole and realize, okay, well, here I am. I've got to make this work. You don't have to make anything work just for the sake of appearances, for the sake of, you know, you want to please your parents or your siblings or the world, your sphere of influence around you. And there's always decisions. There's always an option. There's never, well, I'm stuck with my plight. Here I am. Might as well. I got to suck it up and I'm going to put in my how many years to be with this person and and settle for misery because that's pretty easy, you know, but, but settle for the mediocrity, settle for the meh, you know, that we talk about, settle for the midland, you know, <laughs> that, okay, well, it's day in, day out, you know, it's not going to get any worse. It's not going to get any better, but no, to tell yourself that it's okay to make change. It's okay to make a decision, whether the people around you might go, what? You know, well, we like that guy, you know, well, they're not seeing and living with the things that I have to live with every single day to make conscious choices and conscious decisions about what you're doing in your life and that this is what you have. And it's never too late to make a change. You know, even if you've put in the the 10 years or the, and it's not a loss in the way that those 10 years happened, whether you walk away or not. So if you're ready to make that change, you could still move ahead and redefine what you want this next chapter to be, or in case this next page to be. Oh, Oh, we love love it. (laughs) (laughs) But absolutely, you can literally turn the page and make the next one your own. You do not have to be defined by the people around you for fear that people might think you're a failure. It's you're not. You're not a failure. Absolutely not. Because things may or may not have worked out for whatever reason, there's an assessment at the end of that. And and to uh, you, you don't get a prize at the end for just sticking it out, just to stick something out. Yeah. And that you're worth more than that. Amen. Amen. I think that's a great, that's a great message, universal message. And it's a great message, especially for the our listeners who are on their own journeys. But we have a tradition on this show that we do kind of after talking about some really heavy stuff, we just like to cleanse yes. the palate a little bit. We have a question of the day for you. So here it is. Laura, if you could interview David Bowie, but could only ask him one question, what would it be? Oh, my. 
<laughs> wow. I know you're a Bowie fan, so. <laughs> I would probably ask him, how did you ever keep from growing up? Mm. He, no matter yeah. what age or what decade David Bowie was in, he kept believing even when he had cancer and he was clearly not well and he was at his last months of life, how did you keep from growing up? And that's the magic that I would like to keep for myself. And also, if he could answer that for me, I would be thrilled. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, this has just been very enlightening. I think that the the way you summarized everything kind of at the end is, is perfect because for, you know, all of our listeners, for us, for everybody out there that in the end, you got to do what's, what's right for you. And there's going to be glitter and there's going to be glass, but you still learn and your life is not over when, when you make changes and make decisions. But I, I just really, I think you have a, a fantastic message. And I, I think I encourage everybody to go out there, like Todd said, and get the book because it was, it's on audio too. So I, I really enjoyed listening to it. And, you know, we're just so happy to have you on this afternoon. So thank you for coming. Thank you. We appreciate it so much. Thank you so much, Laura. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Okay, what'd you think? Well, I just love her in general. I love her book, but she's so forthcoming about her life, which to me was very refreshing that she's so candid and open because I think we spoke about this off air. You feel that she's maybe come to a higher consciousness and at a certain point in life, you just stop giving a hell, like a hell, giving a damn about, (laughs) giving a hell, giving, I don't know what that is, giving a a damn about what, giving a damn about what people think because she's just been through so much. And a lot of people would think, Oh my God, you've been married this many times. You have this many kids. You were in this kind of polyamorous relationship. You did this, you did that. Oh my God, that's so shameful. And it's like she owns her story now and it's her story to tell. I mean, what did you think? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I loved it. I feel like, you know, that we kind of have had some similar experiences, not the polyamory part, but just in general, I think that I related to her so much and I feel like she's very relatable as far as I think there are a lot of people that assume that going through all that, you'd just be like, I'm done with love, but I am so not that person. And she is so not that person of like that there's always hope, that there are good people out there. And I think this book is a total testament to that concept as a whole, that I love the glitter and glass analogy. It's just so perfect because it's like, I think it's so perfect too for toxic relationships, for even like opportunities that you start and then they turn sour. It's like it looked so shiny and wonderful and then you realize this is actually like, uh, it's causing damage. This is it's, toxic. I'm, ble- yeah. I'm bleeding out, you know, like that this is, so I just, I'm so excited for her, for all the good things that are going to be coming her way. And that she is now with somebody who's amazing and who helped so much with our technical problems. I know we have so many technical <laughs> problems, but you know, what's cool is that she also said she loves the Kraken, right? At the end of the day, she said, I didn't want this to be a story about, oh, I found the guy and everything's great. Oh, yeah, she yeah. had to find herself, which yeah. I think is what the message of our podcast is. And, and what we're, you know, you have to look within in order to, I don't know, grow. Yeah. So. Yeah. You can't just, you're more than the sum of your parts and you're more than what happened to you. It's how you handle it, how you digest it and how you move forward. Yeah. And, and she, I think, Yeah. I mean, inspirational, inspirational, big proponent of therapy, individual and couples. You know, I don't know how I could have gotten through half of that shit without going to therapy. I mean, and she's so she she talks about it and she's seemingly so well adjusted and just owns she owns that growth part of her journey. Yeah, I do think in a weird, messed up way. And this is in no way like I just hope this comes comes off the right way. But I think that narcissists and toxic people are always attracted to well-adjusted people because then they they want that. They want to be that. And so it's almost like a vampire 
like attraction. And then well, and it's how to, they look, make the person look how they perceive, yeah. how they think they're going to make me look good. They're, yeah, you know, they're, yeah. This person's grounded. So that will, other people will see me as a grounded person. But then they inevitably end up getting jealous or not just jealous, like, oh, they're going to run off with somebody that also happens, but that they have it good and they don't have this kind of dysfunction in their head. And so I think that the reason so many people come out of these relationships and continue to look for love and and go on to have possibly more toxic relationships is because they're not maladjusted. They're just attracting the wrong things. And it's just a point. It, you just have to get to a point where you are like, oh, 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 okay. I see. So I'm going to be a little more guarded, but not shut down. And I'm going to be more perceptive. I'm going to make sure that these people, you know, I, I've, especially her, like, I'm sure that what the point that she, you know, once she got to the Kraken, she's like, okay, well, I've now got a laundry list of things that I am looking for to not be there. Right. And yeah, I just think that it is an amazing story in and of itself. And she is just I don't know. It's a great book. It's one of those ones where it's like in the beginning, you're kind of like, what's you know really happening? Like it because it doesn't go like just chronologically, and then it comes together and it all makes sense, which is kind of how it feels when you're going through a roller coaster life, anyways. So exactly, I can't applaud her more for her courage. And she said, even if I help just one other person out there from hearing my story, that they're not alone. We adore her. We would love to have her back on the program at some point. Go check out her book, Glitter and Glass, glitteringglassbook.com. We will have everything in the show notes. And it has been such a pleasure. Oh, it is. It has. And it always will be with you. It's just lovely <laughs> to see you. Um, you too, so, honey. <laughs> okay, so, till next time. Ta-ta.